Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Our Bible reading is taken from the book of First Peter three thirteen to twenty two. At the end of this reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying thanks be to God. First Peter three thirteen to twenty two. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of death from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Thank you for tuning in this morning. Thank you for joining us wherever you're at in the world. It's always a privilege to be able to gather together with brothers and sisters, with uh, people who trust Christ like we do around the world, uh, regardless of location, time difference, and all other restrictions we're facing in this really difficult and crazy period. So we'll be continuing in our series in First Peter. Um, we're gradually making our way to the end, um, we're in chapter 3 now, and lovely in a few weeks we'll be wrapping up the series. And so I've titled today's sermon, Suffering and Smiling. And that first part is familiar to many of us. Um, these are really difficult days, these are hard times, and many of us are suffering, um, suffering the effects of the pandemic. Some of us are grieving the loss of a job or just the uncertainty of what this means for our financial and economic state. Some of us are having to take on the burdens of being the only family member who is suddenly providing for all your other family members because the others are out of work. I know someone who her children can't even fend for themselves right now because the kind of job that they do require that they move around during the pandemic. Um, and there are some of us as well who are mourning the loss of a loved one or you're just grieving the uncertainty that this brings to your life your work plans your projections all the things you've actually lined up others of us are grieving the impact of this pandemic on ourselves some of us the scenes that we've done and what that means for others for the relationships we've built with or some of us, church was our lifeline, really. Um, church was the time where you were able to get strength for the week to fight your inner demons. And now that everyone is not around you, you are suddenly left alone and you're, it seems like you're almost caving in. 
um, obeying the whims and caprices of your flesh, of the devil, of the world. And there are even some of us as well who are suffering is actually not because of COVID-19. It has always been there. And I'm thinking about people particularly, some of you who are watching now, who are not part of our family of faith, and others of you who are part of our family of faith who are suffering from an illness or condition that hasn't gone away. Or some of you who are suffering from a broken relationship or whatever else you're going through. My GC leader tells um, or has told some of us of the story of a friend of his who a few years after leaving a few years ago when they had just left school, he got a job, he got an opportunity to um, get a job, to write the test of a prestigious oil firm. And so, you know, this is the kind of thing every graduate is praying for, everyone really longs for. But it was a difficult test. And so, you know, he made up his mind, he was going to study hard, he was going to do all the things that he would do, he could do to get the job. Unfortunately, a couple of guys got the dubs or what we call the expo to the test. Um, and so, you know, it was really difficult for him because these guys told him, hey, these are the answers to the questions that are going to be asked on the test of this prestigious place. We all want to work. And it seemed like he had to then make a decision whether to obey God or to follow everyone else. So this guy with much, um, you know, he, he just desired to follow God. And so he didn't copy the guys who had cheated. I'm sure you'd like to hear that he actually got the job. No, he didn't. Those other people who cheated got the job. Some of them have, have gone on to have really um, high and flying careers. And he is still working a low job down at the two temple has never really been able to get that chance back. And that guy is suffering from right for righteousness sake. And some of us are suffering as well like that. We're, we're suffering because we've obeyed Christ. We're suffering because we've done what God wants us to do. And there isn't any reward for it, it seems, except more suffering. And so we're all suffering in different ways. But that second part, the smiling part, it seems like that's just crazy. Like, how can you be suffering and smiling at the same time or rejoicing? Those are the, the, the last things on your mind as you suffer. And so some of you, as I already even said the title, some of you even agree with Fela, the legend, who sang the song Suffering and Smiling as a pie in the sky kind of thing for people who have lost every. Um, ounce of consciousness, every reason to actually live for people who this thing just seems like religion just seems like a crutch to forget your sorrows, a denial of reality. And like, nope, smiling isn't for me. I'm going to go through it. I'm going to be stoic. I'm going to just go through it like I should. The smiling or rejoicing part, no, I can't. It's going to be a denial of myself, of the pain that I'm suffering. But you see, the Holy Spirit actually shows us this morning in this text that it is possible to suffer and to smile, or to suffer and to rejoice. You see, it's not a kind of rejoicing that comes from being exploited, like Fela was singing about, or denying reality, burying your head in the sand like an ostrich, but actually a rejoicing that comes from being aware of reality, of all that actually exists. 
You see, sometimes suffering is like riding or climbing an escalator. Especially if it's those kinds that are high and inclined. You have to somehow get your hands on the railing or the banister to actually keep yourself steady. And it can actually be a very intimidating thing as you are climbing on that thing if you're if you're someone who is afraid of heights. Like, am I going to fall? Am I going to am I going to hold steady on this thing? What you find out is as you're going on the escalator, the fact that you've held your hands on the guardrails, on the railing, on the banister is actually keeping you steady and ensures that you get home safely. And you know, this text is actually showing us the guardrails that can help us as we suffer, that can keep us steady so that we don't fall off on either edge of either denying reality or either engaging in the kind of Cause God and die mentality, like Job's wife says to him. And so this text shows us that there are railings that can keep you steady as you walk through this period of suffering in the world, personally, whether it be anything that you're going through. And so Peter gives us these two railings in this text. And those railings are one, check your attitude. And two, check your hope. Let's say that together. One, check your attitude. Yes and to check your hope. So let's just ask God for his help as we dive in. Lord, we are just asking that you please help us. Now, so many of us are going through really, really difficult times right now. Some have been there even before this pandemic and others have been aggravated by what we're all experiencing in the world right now. So Lord, we ask that you help us to grasp a hold of these majestic railings, these banisters, Lord, that keep us steady as we walk through this world, these uncertain days, these difficult times. Help us even now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Peter says, check your attitude. And so he begins this section we're in with a little bit of a rhetorical question. Let's look at verse 13 together. He says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? It's a rhetorical question. But it's also an annoying question. You see, because Peter is writing to, as we said over and over again in this series, but I'm saying it again, Peter is writing to people who are experiencing suffering, difficult times. And I imagine one of his irritated readers reading this and saying, of course there are lots of people that are ready to harm me for doing good. What kind of question is this, Peter? You see, and that person will be justified if they thought so because in chapter 2, Peter has written about the government and harsh employers that are actually oppressing and persecuting people. In chapter 3, he's written about oppressive husbands who are out to actually um, um, take advantage of their wives. And so in this society where the power structures are not equal, there are actually many people who can actually harm these brothers and sisters for doing good. So this person may actually, like you even hearing the question right now, who can harm me for doing good? Of course, there are lots of people I know who are actually out to harm me for doing good. But you see, the reason why Peter is writing these words, brothers and sisters, is because he wants us to know that even though we may experience harm in our bodies, harm in this world, we cannot be ultimately harmed. How do I know that? You may be wondering. Look at verse 14. He says, even if you should suffer for doing what is right. 
And so that means Peter hasn't forgotten all the things he said earlier. He's saying to this person and to you who are watching me, he's saying, I actually remember everything I've said. That you can actually be harmed for doing good. But look at how he goes on to say. He says in verse 14, Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. And by saying that, he's saying that you cannot be ultimately harmed, friends. You cannot be ultimately harmed. And even if you suffer, like he goes on to say in verse 15, even if you suffer for doing what is good, you are blessed. And you see, this goes against the grain of our prosperity thinking. This goes against the grain of what we think when we say we are blessed. You know, oftentimes when we say we are blessed, we imagine ourselves taking a selfie for Instagram with our iPhone 11 Pro Max, touching the hood of your Benz or G-Wagon with this very nice shapely wife or shapely muscular husband, drenched out, uh, dressed out, decked out, whatever it is, in very lovely clothes, and everything is just going well. But Peter says, no, no. The picture I have of blessing for you transcends that. He says, we are blessed even in suffering. And what that means is that there is a certainty of God's disposition towards us that does not change regardless of what we are experiencing. God's disposition to doing us good in Christ does not change even when we are going through suffering. Friends, that's what it ultimately means to be blessed. It doesn't mean everything works out perfectly. Everything lines up as we want it to. Oh, I, I, I put this plan here. And after this plan, I'm going to do this. And after this thing, I'm going to do this thing. And everything, if you look back over the course of your life, everything suddenly works out. No, that's not what Peter is saying. He's saying even when things don't go according to what you have wanted, even when things don't go the way you have loved, you are blessed. And what that means is that God's disposition towards you, towards doing you good because of Christ, does not change. And so he goes on in verse 15 to say that Christians should rever or honor or esteem Christ as Lord in their hearts. I know by saying this, he intends to create a contrast between what he has just said in verse 15 about honoring or revering Christ and what he says in verse 14 about not fearing those who can actually harm us. And the contrast he intends to create is that he knows that these brothers and sisters are going to actually be oppressed by all these people I listed earlier, by the government, by their employers, by their spouses who may actually be seeking to cheat on them or to oppress them or take advantage of them. He knows all these things are going to happen and he says, don't fear these people, rather revere Christ as Lord. And isn't it true, friends, that what we actually fear is what we esteem or honor. And Peter is saying, don't fear these people, fear God. Don't fear these people, fear God. And how does he want these believers to actually show that they fear Christ? How does he want these believers to show that they revere Christ, so honor Christ in their hearts? Let's read verse 15 and 16 together. It says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, 
always keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And so if you look at this, he's showing that our attitude in suffering consists of two things. One, the internal attitude, and two, the external attitude. You guessed it, right? If you guessed. And so let's look at those two briefly. Their internal attitude and their external attitude. So by their internal attitude. If you look at verse 15, he says, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Verse 15, again, he goes on to say, Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you. And so if you want to be someone who suffers and smiles, or someone who can smile even in the midst of the hardest suffering, Peter is saying, you have to begin by checking your internal attitude, your disposition. And Peter is saying, revering Christ is not just seen by what we say on Sunday with our lips. And, and the things that, or the songs that we've just sung, beautiful songs that tell of how great God is, is revealed in, our, in the disposition of our heart towards Christ. It revealed in us revering Christ as Lord. Now, for us English language speakers, even though for many of us it's not first language, it's a second language, but for us as English language speakers, we can look at that and think, hmm, Christ, Lord, okay, it's two names for the same person. It's kind of like when my mommy calls me Emmanuel and Adeoluwa, she's really referring to the same person, there's really no much difference, that kind of thing. Oh no, that's not actually how the Bible presents it, you see. The Bible presents these names as different titles for the same person. And these titles speak of different spheres of relationships that must always come together. There are, are different spheres of relationships, but they must always come together. So for instance, there's only one person who can speak of me as Emmanuel, her colleague, her acquaintance, her, her friend, and yet also speak of me as Emmanuel, her husband. And that's my wife. You see, there will be a massive problem if, for instance, she can only speak of me as her colleague or her friend. As this person to whom, oh, we kind of say sweet things, but we actually don't have any relationship after all that. There's no deepening of our marriage. There's no strategizing, no um, parenting of our son together, no um, um, praying and deepening our love together. All of those things are absent. There will be, be a problem there. And there will be a problem as well if, all we ever do actually is just ride in the car together as friends. We go to the same workplace together. We kind of hang out in these cool, cool spots. But we actually don't have any deepening of our love together, any strategizing, any thinking about our home, about our family as parents, as married people who are actually on the same journey together. And that's what the Bible means. When the Bible talks of Christ and Lord, he's speaking about the two spheres of relationships and um, relationship to Christ that believers must have. Christ speaking of his salvific work, he's saving us, he's redeeming us, but also Lord referring to his rulership, referring to his dominion over all of life and controlling everything that actually belongs to the believer. And Peter is saying to divorce these two things is unbiblical. He's saying every time believers actually fear um, what can be done to them or fear these other people that can oppress them or fear these other people that inflict suffering on them and don't revere Christ. 
You are effectively saying, I trust Christ for saving me. I trust Christ for redeeming my soul. But he doesn't actually have any rulership over me. He doesn't actually have any rulership over my circumstance. He actually doesn't have any rulership or dominion over me. This thing that I'm suffering is what is Lord to me. And so Peter says, we must revere Christ as Lord. He has saved us. He has redeemed us. He has done a deep purifying work in our soul. But friends, it doesn't just end there. His dominion over our life is eternal and remains certain. And by revering Christ, we are saying, no, this circumstance, this suffering, this hardship doesn't have the last word. This hardship doesn't define me or control me or rule me or, or define how we act to life. Christ alone is Lord. But Peter says that reverence must lead to something. And so he continues in verse 15. He says, be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. And can I just say, friend, he says, we should give an answer. Not a sophisticated answer. Not Pastor Femi's answer. And some of you are thinking, eh, Pastor Femi's answer is a sophisticated answer. Maybe, maybe not. But you see, do you see the point? He's saying, give an answer. And so on the one hand, friends, this is liberating. It means I don't have to read all the books I, that, 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 that possibly exist on the subject. I don't have to um, cram all the things that I don't know. I don't have to actually imitate someone else. I can give an answer that comes out of my own relationship and experience with Christ. And can I just say that this is what has stopped some of you from actually talking about Christ to your friends or Christ to your neighbors because you're like, I really don't have the answers to this question. But the text says you should give an answer. That doesn't mean you should give a dumb answer, but it does mean that you should be able to give an answer that does not necessarily come from the abundance of what someone else has said from the deepening work that Christ has done in your heart. And if I can just stay here a little bit more, some of you may have um, heard the, 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 miracle, the, the, the story of the miracle that Christ did to the man who was um, given sight in John chapter 9. And the, the Pharisees corner him and ask him, tell us, who is this man? And he says, I really don't know. I can't say more. But this is what I know. I once was blind, but now I see. He was able to talk, to give an answer out of his own sweetness of relationship with Christ. Out of his own experience with Christ. And I can say that for many of us who are believers, you don't have to know all the answers, friends. You don't have to have all the answers to all the difficult passages in the Bible. You don't have to be able to answer all the really twisted and difficult philosophical questions. But you can give an answer to what Christ has done in your life. But you see, that is the second part. You must be able to give an answer that flows out from what Christ has done in your life. And that means we have to be experiencing Christ as well. We have to be seeing him. We have to be fellowshipping with him. We have to be delighting in him. We have to be loving him. You see, unfortunately, many Christians are like salesmen of a product that they've never tried. We're trying to get other people to buy something that has never really worked for us. And some of you who know, many of us know that there are actually few things that are worse than that. Like getting someone to 
than getting than someone who is trying to get us to buy something that they've actually never tested or that hasn't worked. And so there's this book. It's called The Richest Man in Babylon. I have nothing against the book. I've never read it. Um, the person who wrote it probably died in the 40s or 50s or even in the 30s, I think. So it's a really old book. But every time I see that book, I always see it either someone selling it in traffic or you're in a bus park and you're about to travel and there's this guy with a stack of books who just wanted to sell the books to you. And they're saying, oh, read this book. It will make you rich. <laughs> and you're wondering, like, eh, why haven't you read it? You see, why haven't you plumbed into the depths of this book to get all the wealth that it actually offers? And so I don't buy it. I don't know people who buy it. Um, people that I know who have read that kind of either poetry from someone. And I don't know anyone who has read it who has been rich. I'm just saying. Nothing against it. Or maybe you've actually written a public bus and then everybody's going, maybe you're coming from CMS, and then as you're getting on third mainland, this person just stands up and starts talking about this wonder pill that can actually cure all forms of illness. It can cure erectile dysfunction. This same pill can cure menstrual pains. This same pill can cure um, 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 whatever other problems you're having, headache, fever. This one wonder pill. But everybody knows that this guy is actually just selling this pill because he's just trying to get some money so that he can actually pay his fare. And so maybe one or two people have mercy on him and they buy and he's quite the rest of the trip. Salesmen of a product that they've never tried. Salesmen of a product that has never worked for them. And many of us Christians are like that. We're talking about this, oh Jesus Christ, this person who has redeemed my soul, this person who can actually do great stuff for you, this person who is actually closer to you than your closest friend or your sibling or your brother. And many times we haven't actually experienced that sweetness as well. And Peter says, if we are going to be the kind of people who, in spite of our suffering, in spite of our hardship, in spite of the difficult circumstances that we are going through, we have to be people who are internally disposed to Christ. We're actually enjoying sweetness of fellowship with him. He's actually changing us. He's transforming us. He's revealing his love to us. And so our internal attitude has to be in check. But you see, he also says, the external attitude has to also be in check as well. And so in verse 16, he says, when we are giving an answer and doing all the things that flow from what has happened inside of us, in verse 15, in verse 16, he says, we have to do it with gentleness and respect. You see, friends, it means that this internal attitude, this internal disposition towards Christ must be revealed by how we deal with other people, with gentleness and respect. These people, as we see in the context, in verse 13 and 14, there sometimes there are people who are trying to harm us. People who are actually the ones inflicting the suffering upon us. As we see also in chapter 2 and chapter 3 as well, people who make life unbearable. But sometimes also there are people in verse 15 who are just asking us questions. And so he says, to all of these people, there has to be gentleness and respect in your dealings. 
And I'm not going to spend too much time there because last week, Pastor Femi talked about this and I would encourage you to please go and listen, um, address questions also of when actually do you then say, no, this person has been cheating me, this person has been just taking advantage of me, all of those kinds of questions. You can listen to last week's sermon. But can I just say um, <laughs> that when you're going through suffering, when you're going through hardship, gentleness and respect are usually the last things on your mind. And as we're reading this, you might be saying to Peter, eh, it's easy for you to say, you're probably somewhere writing this letter with AC on and your brain is cool and everything is working out well for you. Treat these people with gentleness and respect. But no, that's not what Peter is doing. That's not what Peter is writing from. We know this because in the book of Acts, we see that Peter's ministry for Christ is peppered with so much suffering, so much imprisonment. We know this because the people he's writing to, he's sort of like a pastor over them. He's writing probably from the city of Rome, the very center of the place where all of this persecution and hardship is being exported to believers all over the world. And so Peter is not just writing from a chilled corner in a safe house. Peter is writing from within the very depths of suffering as well. And church history actually tells us that Peter himself was crucified upside down as a mark of his suffering, as a mark of his obedience to Christ. So he's not just writing from a lack of experience. He's writing from someone who is very familiar with the suffering, the hardship, the difficulty that you're experiencing right now. He says, regardless of what's going on, our external disposition must be one of gentleness and respect. But why? Why gentleness and respect? Can I just say, I think it's because when we as Christians treat those who are oppressing us, treat those who are making us suffer, treat those who are looking on us, on the suffering that we're experiencing, with gentleness and respect, we are saying effectively that our suffering does not have the last word. We are saying that our suffering is not lord over our lives. Our suffering will not determine and control how we react to circumstances. We are saying our, our identity flows out of what Christ has done for us. And that is how we are going to treat and relate with others even when they do us wrong. By saying that Christ is Lord of our lives and we will follow his example, one who suffered all the way to the cross. And so friends, as we ride the escalator of suffering, the Holy Spirit is saying to us this morning, the only way that you can actually ride that escalator of suffering well is by keeping steady, keeping your hand on the banisters, on the railings, so that you don't fall off. How's your attitude doing? How are you reacting in the midst of the suffering that you are going through? How's your internal disposition? And some of you may be listening to this and you're saying, yes, I, I, I'm not doing well at all. I'm not doing well at all. Like my, my, I don't feel any sweetness of love to Christ. I don't, I don't feel, one, I don't even have any answer, not even talk of giving an answer to someone who asks me. But secondly, is nothing is happening in my life. It's just dry. It's just, just hard. There's nothing going on there. Can I just ask you to, to get a few people around you and to be vulnerable with them? 
You know, sometimes when when we are going through so much suffering, we have this idea that we have to be superhumans. We have to actually kind of keep a strong face and, and be stoic and, and show us though nothing is happening to us. But no, that's not what we find in this passage. That's not what we find in this text. You see, when we are behaving as, human, as superhumans, we're saying that we are Lord and Christ is not. But we actually see in this passage, there is only one superhuman. And his name is not Emmanuel. His name is not Pastor Femi. His name is not your name. His name is Jesus Christ. So please get a few people around you. Be vulnerable. Tell them things are hard. This is hard. Why is God allowing me to go through this? Why is this going on? And as you gather with brothers and sisters, as they help you process your suffering, you can lament and wail before God. God can take it. Can I tell you that? God can take the suffering. God can take all the, 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 the outbursts of your anger and the injustice that you feel and the pain that you feel. You see, he took it in the time of Job. And even our Lord Jesus Christ was lamenting before God. My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? God can take it from us. So get a few people around you. Be vulnerable. Cry out to God with them. And let them minister the sweetness and love of Christ to you. So that you can be strengthened internally. Even as you go through suffering. Secondly also is that you then have to think deliberately. How can I show people gentleness and respect? You see, gentleness and respect is going to flow out of you acknowledging what Christ has done for you, what God has done for you as well. And oftentimes we don't treat people with gentleness and respect because we think that they, we're actually getting the shorter end of the stick. We think that they're actually getting a better deal than us. And they don't really know what we are going through and everything is hard for us. And so maybe it might be a good practice for some of us either with friends or even personally, get a journal, write things down and think about how God has been kind to you and how God has been gracious to you even when you don't deserve it. Even when you have hurt him, even when you haven't loved him, even when you have not treasured him, he has shown you gentleness and love in Christ. And as you think and meditate on that reality of what God has done for you, it overflows in your life. And so you are able to treat people with gentleness and respect even when they don't deserve it. Your external disposition, your external attitude becomes one that is winsome and loving. And so the first banister or railing, the first thing to hold us steady as we climb the escalator of suffering is to check our attitude. But the second thing Peter shows us in this text is to check our hope. Check our hope. I know some of you may have already heard it or seen it in the text or heard it as I was talking. Now, Peter already talks about hope. In fact, this letter is so hope saturated that you can, it's almost impossible to go anywhere in the text without seeing it. And so he's right here in verse 18, staring us in the face. Look at verse 18. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And Peter is saying to these sufferers, Christ has suffered as well. Friends, that is good news. Christ has suffered as well. Just think about that. Jesus Christ, the creator of the world, the one who made every human being in the world, has suffered for sins. And he wasn't suffering for his own sins, friends. He was suffering for our sins. He was suffering in our place. It was a substitutionary death. The text tells us, Peter says in verse 18, he suffered as the righteous Christ for the unrighteous us. And he says he did this so that we can be reconciled to God. Friends, this is staggering and mind-blowing. Just think about it. Jesus Christ, who formed those Roman soldiers, took on the whip from those very same Roman soldiers that he formed. Jesus Christ, who made the deposits of iron and kept it in the ground, was nailed to the cross by nails made from that very same iron that he created. Jesus Christ, who made all vegetation and wood and everything that exists in the world was was put and hung on a cross of wood from the very things he created. Friends, he wasn't killed as he was playing football. He wasn't ambushed as he rode his donkey between Nazareth and Caesarea and ambushed by, and, uh, by robbers who killed him and took all his possessions. No, he actually went to the cross. And the Bible tells us that he did so willingly. And this text tells us that he did it in our place so that we can be reconciled to God. And Peter is saying to these suffering exiles, you have hope in suffering because someone else has paid the eternal price for your suffering. All the suffering that you deserve, all the suffering that you have taken on and borne eternally in the lake of fire, Christ has taken on in your stead. But Peter is also saying this, friends, to these believers, and he's saying this to us so that we can be assured that your suffering will not have the last word. Hallelujah. Your suffering will not, does not have the last word. Look at the second part of verse 18. He says, this very same Jesus was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And by that, Peter means that Jesus Christ died physically. So it wasn't that Jesus Christ kind of died spiritually somehow, metaphysically. No, no, no. Jesus Christ actually died physically. But God raised him back to life by the Spirit's power. Amen. His suffering did not conquer him. And so we believers, all who trust in this same Christ, all who are joined to this same Christ in faith can be assured that their suffering will not have the last word. And friends, that should give so many of us hope even in these hard times. Whether we're going through suffering that has been inflicted on us by others or suffering that has been inflicted on us by ourselves or suffering that comes from the fact that we live in a fallen world. Our suffering, your suffering, 
whatever it is, we will not have the last word because Jesus Christ suffered in your stead and has been raised up and now lives eternally, making intercession for you. Now, that is the last simple verse in this text, apart from verse 22. That's the last simple verse in this text. But I hope we can begin to see that it is possible as Christians to suffer and smile, to suffer and rejoice. Not because we are oblivious to reality, not because we buried our heads in the sand like a nursery, but rather because we are very conscious of reality. The reality that Christ has suffered in our stead. The reality that now he has been resurrected. The reality that now he lives victoriously over every power, like he says in verse 22, over every dominion, over every authority, over every power, every dominion, over every authority. Christ now lives. All right, so now let's get into the difficult part. Verses 19 to 21, can I just say, are some of the most difficult verses in all of the Bible to actually interpret. And it's not hard to see why. Because you see, even though those are three, um, three verses, they're actually three long sentences that have now been, that have an inserted imagery or inserted story into them. But if all scripture is profitable for us, like, like the Bible actually says, then it means that God intends for us to get some profit from these verses, even though they are hard to interpret. And so, for those of you who haven't been attending um, Theology Day, consider this your five-minute theology class, okay? So we have a little bit of a timeout. Timeout, even though I'm here. We have a little bit of a timeout so that we can just get some intro into how you actually interpret Bible passages. So, all right, this is welcome to class. So can I just say the very first thing when you are interpreting difficult Bible texts or even any, any, any biblical text, it's always important to remember three things, these three things. One, you always interpret unclear passages in light of the passages that are clear. All right, so interpret unclear passages in light of the passages that are clear. Two is knowing that if the Bible is the word of God, then the Bible cannot contradict itself. And so the Bible cannot say A and say B, and both of those be true at the very same time, in the very same way. All right, so the Bible cannot contradict itself. And three, context, context, context. Context is very, very important in actually understanding what Bible passages mean. All right, so those are three things to always bear in mind. And so by doing those three things, we can actually already know what this passage does not mean, right? This verse is 19 to We can know what it does not mean. So we know, for instance, number one, that this passage is not, is not teaching baptismal regeneration. Now, baptismal regeneration is a doctrine, some people believe, that means that when you are baptized in water, you are saved as a Christian. You become you are saved that you become a Christian. That the, the, the process of or the ordinance of baptism actually confers on you the identity of being a Christian. And so they'll say, Oh, look at verse 21. It says, Because Peter says, Baptism now saves you. Once you are baptized in water, you are a Christian. 
Well, the problem with that interpretation is that there's no other Bible passage that talks that way. The Bible doesn't teach in any other text, particularly the New Testament, New Testament text now where baptism features, that baptism actually saves a person. So the Bible doesn't teach that baptism says, but also if you look at the story Peter is telling, the story of Noah, the people who are actually immersed in the water, the people who are actually in the water, and the people who are not saved, there are the people who drown. And so Peter cannot be talking about baptismal regeneration, or talking about baptism saving in, in the sense of, being, of, of making you a Christian when the analogy he's using actually shows that the people who were in the water were not saved, you see. Secondly, we can also be sure that this passage is not teaching the doctrine of purgatory. Now, the doctrine of purgatory is where some people mean, oh, that the Bible, the, uh, that there is, once a person has died, there is still a second chance after they've died to become a Christian, to make penance for their sins, and then to go to heaven. But the problem, and so they will get that from like verses 19 and 20, where it says there was a proclamation, which that very word can mean there was a preaching that was made to those who were imprisoned. And so there was then a conversion, and then those people were released. But the problem again with that interpretation is that the Bible actually doesn't teach that. And then even when you look at the text, it doesn't say that those who were imprisoned now became converted and then they were able to go to heaven. So we are clear what it does not mean. So what then does it mean? So what does it mean? Now, I think to actually understand what these verses mean, verses 19 to 21, three questions help, all right? Stay with me, stay with me. Some of you are ready rolling your eyes and you're, oh my God, this is difficult. Just stay with me, we're almost there. So three questions help us um, in understanding what this passage means. One, when was the proclamation? So that's the first question. When was the proclamation? Second, what was the proclamation? And to whom was the proclamation? So when was the proclamation? To whom was the proclamation? And what was the proclamation? So when was the proclamation? Well, if you look in the text, the most likely answer is that it was after Christ's resurrection. And so if you look in verse 19, we're already helped there by the, um, by the NIV that translates those first, um, the, the, the initial words as after being resurrected. And you may be using, some of you may be using other translations like the ESV or, or CSV that says in which he was resurrected. But when you read verses 18 and 19 together, and you understand that in verse 18, he's talking about the death of Christ physically, the resurrection of Christ by the power of the Spirit. Verse 19 then logically follows that he's talking about something that happened post-resurrection, right? So that in the resurrection body, Christ then made that proclamation. And so... That's the, the very first answer is that when was the proclamation made? Well, the pr proclamation was made after Christ was resurrected. Made, and so therefore it means that it was made by Christ because the reference is to Christ. But secondly, the second question is what was the proclamation? If you read verses 18, 19, and 22 together, you see that the proclamation was not a proclamation of, oh, come and give your life to Christ in, this, in that sense of preaching. 
It was a proclamation or an announcement of the victory of Christ. So verse 22 expressed that very clearly. He says, now this very same Christ, the one who has resurrected, after being resurrected, he is seated at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. And so you see that the resurrection of Christ was a proclamatory event, signifying his defeat over the powers of the devil. And lastly, to whom was the proclamation? Verse 19 says it was to imprison spirits who were disobedient in the days of Noah. Now, again, that's also a uh, difficult text, but I think that when, when, when you read that passage, the best reading of that passage is to understand that as human beings who were disobedient in the days of Noah. We know this because if you read um, Genesis 6, 7, and 8, where the, the 6, 7, 8, 9, where the story of Noah is told, you actually see that it is human beings who are actually disobedient to God in that passage. In those, in that passage. That passages, those passages. <laughs> um, and so it was, the resurrection of Christ was a proclamatory event of the judgment that those people had actually received, but will then receive because they had disobeyed God's plan of salvation in the time of Noah. All right. And I think that that also makes sense that it's human beings. When you look, um, for instance, continue to read in the text, as we'll see next week, I think, in chapter 4, verse 6, where the people that this gospel is being preached or being announced to are actually human beings. And when you also, some of you may also um, know this story that when Christ resurrected, this is told in Matthew 27, 50, verses 52 to 53, that when Christ actually resurrected, his, his resurrection was also seen as a vindication of those who had actually trusted God. Such that when Christ resurrected, um, when Christ died and resurrected, there were those who actually also resurrected in Jerusalem. And we're told in Matthew 27, 52 and 53, that they actually resurrected, came out of their tombs, and they, were, they appeared to people um, in the city. And so if Christ's resurrection was a um, vindicate, vindicative event for those who trusted in Christ, then it could also have been a judgmental event for those who did not trust in Christ. And so the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of Christ was a judgment of their unbelief in Christ and the reality of what Noah's salvation and his family going through the ark actually foreshadowed. Now, let's come back. Let's come back. I know some of you are already tired. Let's come back. So why did Peter tell these believers this long winding story. Why couldn't he have just said, oh, guys, Christ has resurrected. Full stop. I think it's so that these believers can recognize that the victory that Christ has won for them in a world where everything seems to be against them is certain. You see. In fact, if you read verses 20 and 21, Peter says that those people who were saved in the time of Noah were eight people. There were just very few of them. And these believers can bear with that because there's so much going on in the world. They are also in the minority. And it seems like with everyone else doing all these things, will we, will we actually ever get out of this? And Peter is saying, no, there were eight people saved in that time. How much more now in the time of Christ? God is just as committed 
to you guys as he was then to Noah and his family. And he says, regardless of where you are scattered around in the world, like he says in chapter 1, verse 1, regardless of all the things you are going through in the world, God is committed to you as well. Let that be the ground of your hope in your suffering. He has raised Christ. He has raised him, showing his triumph over suffering, showing his triumph over the powers of the devil, showing his triumph over all things that don't believe and hold to him. And he will hold you through your darkest moments in the suffering you are experiencing right now. And Peter says this is what baptism points to. It points to our union with the living Christ who has actually saved us. It is showing that we are Christ and just as suffering did not hold him down, did not hold him back, that we will yet rise with Christ too. And can I just say, maybe some of you are Christians, you've been Christians for a long time, and you actually don't, you've never been baptized. You almost even scorn the ordinance of baptism because you feel like there's, there's really nothing. You see, when you see, we look at this text, it's saying that baptism is not just going into water, it's actually showing your union with Christ. The fact that you have died and now resurrected with him. The fact that you are his is an announcement, is a, is a proclamation to the world that I have been redeemed by the one who has triumphed over every ounce of suffering in the world. And so that gives Christians hope. But can I just tell you as well that if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not one who has surrendered your life to Christ, this should scare you as well. Because it means that if the resurrected Christ, if his resurrection was a judgmental event for some, and a salvific event for some, it means that for those who don't trust him, your suffering actually has the very last word. And so you might be in this life, maybe because you have a lot of wealth and resources, or you you know people, and you are able to, or you have a lot of knowledge, you can actually go through suffering smiling. But can I tell you that the Bible says, this text says, was the Holy Spirit is saying to you this very morning, that that will end ultimately in misery and in sorrow for you. And I'm not trying to scare you, I'm just saying what the Bible is saying. Can I urge you to come to Christ if you haven't trusted Christ? If you haven't tasted of his sweetness, if you haven't tasted of his mercy, can I ask you to come to Christ? Christian, you can actually suffer and smile. You can actually rejoice in the midst of your suffering. And let me just close with this parable from John Newton. John Newton was a Christian in the 18th century who wrote the hymn that many of us know today called Amazing Grace. And Newton tells a story to illustrate a Christian and our journey to heaven to Christ. He's saying a Christian is like somebody who has been contacted and asked to come to New York City to come and receive an inheritance of a million dollars. Alright, so Newton is writing in the 18th century, the 1700s. A million dollars then would be like what? 100 million, 100 billion, 1 trillion dollars, whatever today. 
And so he says this person gets in his chariot because they didn't have cars back then. This person gets in his chariot and is riding all the way to New York City, excited, rejoicing. I have this huge inheritance waiting for me. He's singing, he's shouting, he's telling everyone else on the way as he travels. And just as he's, he's about getting there, with a few miles to go, his carriage actually breaks down. And that's the equivalent of having a flat tire. And let's say now you have all four tires are flat. And you have just one mile to go. And he says this person gets out of the carriage. And the person is crying and wailing and sits down and says, Oh, my carriage. Oh, my carriage. Oh, my carriage. And Newton says, that's how we Christians behave sometimes. That there is so much that God has guaranteed us in Christ. And he's saying that whatever we're experiencing right now pales in comparison to what God guarantees us in Christ. Sometimes in this life, God will lift the dark cloud of our suffering. God will take that suffering away. But other times, for his own sovereign plans and purposes, the Lord keeps that dark cloud. But friends, you can be assured of this (laughs) There is an eternal inheritance that awaits you in the presence of the living Christ. And you see, so this is not a mere avoidance like Fela was singing in his song. No, no, this is a certainty of what God can and will do because he has resurrected Christ for you. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.